Welcome to Your Business Greatness. I am your host, Simone Sloan, the Executive Strategist. And really, our mission here is to educate business owners, professionals, the community at large. Our next guest describes herself as determined, resilient, and a minimalist. Her name, Charlie Oliver, founder and CEO of Tech 2025 and Served Fresh Media. Tech 2025 is a learning platform and innovation community and really serves the professionals to help them understand and embrace emergent technologies. They produced over 100 events since they've launched. Serve Fresh Media targeted towards enterprise companies to help them with their digital marketing strategy, events, marketing, and product development services. Please let us welcome Charlie. Charlie Oliver, it is a pleasure to have you here today. I'm so excited to hear about Tech 25, your journey, and also challenges and the way in which you cultivated your team and learnings that you took away during your whole professional and entrepreneurial journey. So before we begin, why don't you share a little bit about you? Okay, well, I'm I'm happy to be here, I should say. Thank you so much for inviting me. I love the opportunity to speak with you and your audience and have these important conversations. So thank you for having me. This This is excellent. I am Charlie Oliver. I'm the founder and CEO of Tech 2025, which is a learning community and a platform for discussing and sort of exploring emerging technologies and their impact on society and on business now and in the near future, right? And so we concentrate on preparing people and businesses on how to really understand where the opportunities are in emerging technologies like AI, machine learning, 3D mm-hmm. printing and everything, and also how to sort of uh, navigate the minefields, right? <laughs> that uh, <laughs> avoid the pitfalls as there are many of them uh, now and to come. And that was, I launched in 2017, January. Mm-hmm. That was our first event, January the 11th of flies. And I'm also the founder and CEO of Surfresh Media, which yeah. is a digital media strategy agency that I launched in 2008, nine. And uh, we focused in the beginning on bringing companies into the world of social media. And back then, as you know, it was very, very different. Mm -hmm. Uh, Companies had no idea what any of this was. And so we were a part of sort of that first crop of agencies and everything that brought companies into the digital world and and then got them to understand the the technologies and the potential of it. So Mm -hmm. that in it, that whole narrative of Mm -hmm helping companies and people to embrace technologies and to make the most of them. That has been my journey since the beginning. And so in 2017, I specifically launched Tech 2025 to sort of address a couple of things that I was seeing, both from my enterprise clients, Mm -hmm. right? And that they were beginning to freak out in 2016 (laughs) about AI and machine learning. (laughs) And they would ask questions like, Charlie, what is this? And I'm doing presentations right. for C-suite executives mm-hmm. and uh, and companies mm-hmm. about this stuff. And so Tech 2025 was sort of my answer to that because I knew that they were not equipped at that time to even begin to do what I knew would need to be done, which is you have to 
sort of move away from the top-down innovation model, right, mm-hmm. and go bottom-up and begin mm-hmm. to really include your organization in this process the way that you've never have before. And then the other thing was, to be honest with you, in 2016, as everyone knows, it was a very volatile year, although mm-hmm. it's it seems like a playground compared to today, right? But it was a very volatile year in our history. And I, that year where we had the presidential election and we had a, a lot going on, I heard things coming from a lot of the luminaries, the leaders in technology mm-hmm. and emerging tech. I'm talking about Eric Schmidt and Mark Zuckerberg and mm-hmm. a lot of the, you know, that, to be honest with you, pissed me off. I didn't like the way that they were talking about the potential of the technology. I didn't mm-hmm. like the way they sort of glossed over you know, the problems that were clearly that, w- that are just inherent in any right. you know, sort of industrial revolution that you have. And so this also, Tech 2025, was a response to that. And I and when I say I was really pissed off, I have to be honest with you, I, that year I was just like, you know, like, <laughs> and so that's so, where this came in. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's great. But here's what I also want to understand. How did you get into the emergent technology sector? I know you you had the need because you're listening, but what happened prior to you saying, hey, I need to do this? Oh, wow. That's a great question. You mean before I launched Surfresh Media? Yes. Uh, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> I have a very, <laughs> yeah, and I tend to gloss over a lot of things too. So I, pardon me if I do that. I will say that my background, my bio is, is extremely sort of, um, I say diverse. First, a lot of mm-hmm. people look at my resume and they go, wow, you've done corporate law, you've been here, you've been there. So before I started in emerging tech, right, which was 2007, technically, right. I was actually working in, as we called it back then, old media, traditional media, and in, at that time, uh, corporate law. Mm-hmm. And so I, I began to see a shift back then as someone who worked in, uh, in on sitcoms. I worked mm-hmm. in TV for years. I worked in um, in film. I worked at Sundance. I did a lot of uh, the creative development. Yeah. Um, I worked on the creative process and everything. I love that. But even in corporate law, I worked a lot with sort of getting the, the law firms and the word processing departments and the attorneys up to speed with the technologies that were coming. Yeah. And this, this was before the, the social media, right? Before mm-hmm. 2007. Mm-hmm. So tech has always been my, my thing. Right. But what I, what I saw particularly happening in 2007 with regards to content mm. and being a content person was that this new thing called the internet was like, wow, it was mm-hmm. really kind of, it, you, well, it wasn't new at that time. Social media was new, right. right? And the thing that happened, which is really funny, and I can I can really point to a very specific moment where I said, okay, I'm launching my startup. I'm, I've got to be in this. I mean, mm. it was that, number one, I was really tired of being in the other industries that I was right. in. I, I felt like they were sort of yeah, stagnant. I, I've been there, done that. But when that election happened, again, another pivotal election that yeah. we thought was the end of the world, the, mm. the 2008 election, mm-hmm. Kane and Obama, that was like mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. I A woman came to me, her name was Catherine Bevel Jones. And this is how women help each other, right? She, We met each other at one of the tech events and tech was very small in New York City at that time. Mm. Everyone knew everyone. It was like 30, 40 of us, maybe. And yeah. we all went to the same events every time we went to an event. <laughs> hey, Charlie, hey, Bob, how you doing? <laughs> right? And Catherine reached out to me and we were all very emotional. Remember, what's her was- name? Sarah Palin had mm-hmm. been announced, remember? And that kind of tore everything mm-hmm. apart. It was like, so she reached out to me and uh, no secret, I I was voting for Obama and so was she. And she said, Charlie, we've got to do something. She said, this whole thing with Sarah Palin, 
we've got to do something. Mm. And she's, I said, you know, you're right. And she said, and now Catherine is someone who worked in media too, in traditional right. media. And she was segueing as a producer and a director and everything. And she said, we should use the social media, the technologies that's available to us now to amplify the voices of the women who are not being heard. Mm. And I said, yes, I said, well, damn it, that's it. That's it. And so I said, You're on to something. Yeah. And so what happened was there were these, there were two other women named Lara and, um, oh, I forgot their her, the other woman's name, which is mm-hmm. terrible. But anyway, they did this, this again is women being at the forefront of things that are happening, yes. but not necessarily getting the, the recognition. But right. these two women sent a letter to 10 of their friends mm-hmm. and the letter, re- and it was an email, mind you. So this goes to show you, they just sent like a distribution to right. 10 friends. And the letter said, Listen, no offense to Sarah Palin, but we personally don't think she is equipped to run the country, which is laughable now when you consider everything that's happened since right. then, right? But but having said that, we want to know what you think. If mm-hmm. you think she's qualified, if so, why? If not, why? Now, clearly, most of their friends are also going to be Democrats and independents. But anyway, the letter went There's viral. Their own uh, audience. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You preach it to the choir. But it was a very thoughtful thing to say, hey, what do you think? Give mm-hmm. us your feedback. And we want this to go viral. So share it with your friends. And it blew up. They had 250,000 responses. It was literally wow. a, an email that went like cross country. So yeah. anyway, the bottom line is that Catherine and it's women from all over the country were writing back saying, well, this is how I feel. This is this. And it was quite profound because mm-hmm. they had women who were in their 90s and 20s. Wow. So multi-generational. Multi-generational. So Catherine's idea was to live stream people reading those letters all day for like eight hours. Mm. These are the women responding to Sarah Palin, not the media, not businesses, not political pundits. These are real women, right? right? And so I loved it. And and I, at that point, YouTube was one year old, right? YouTube, I mean, (laughs) live streaming wasn't even- Yeah, can you imagine- (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, and Twitter had only been around for a year and a half, yes. and uh, and my suggestion was that we made it a make it a webathon, which is what I called it, and that word didn't exist then either. And I said, let's make it a webathon and raise money that would go towards the very organizations that would be sort of threatened by Sarah Palin's mm. rise yeah, to power, yeah. like Planned Parenthood, yeah. and um, I think we had something about the wild coyotes because she used to hunt, and then we had like the <laughs> we were going to donate money to the Coyote Foundation. <laughs> That's a lot of creativity too. Just thinking about all the different in- yes. that would be impacted, and right? And here's the thing: we also thought of the idea of doing micropayments because we said, well, we don't want feel like they have to donate, but if you do, you can donate like a dollar or two dollars. Mm-hmm. But at that mm-hmm. time, it was so early; the technology did not exist to process micropayments. Wow, you couldn't do it. So anyway, the, to your point, to, to your question the reason what ended up happening with that and why it was a turning point in my life. Mm-hmm. And I know certainly in Catherine's life was that we put the call out to people all over New York, like actors, act, it doesn't matter, whatever you do, come in, grab a letter, read it into the camera, and it's going to go out into the into internet. Yeah. It trended on Twitter. Wow. Huffington Post sent the reporter. It blew up. We got so Amazing. much attention. Yes. And it was pretty powerful to give voices or to give a voice to the women. Right. Who average women doing their work, doing their lives, living their lives. Right. And right. when I saw it was such a moving thing, it was a really profound thing. And we had men coming in to, so to be fair, a lot of mm-hmm. men helped 
helped out and everybody just helped out and came in and we just would read those letters nonstop. So we did, a, I think it's probably one of the first long-term or long live stream like webathons that were didn't mm-hmm. exist at the time, at that time, right? 2008. And so it was so profound that I thought, wow, okay, I'm definitely in this to win it. And then I launched my own web video platform mm-hmm. my, and my own startup. That was my first startup, which was called Art of Talk. Mm-hmm. And it was a talk show, mm-hmm. a, an online talk show <laughs> in the woods of 2008, 2009. And uh, it was about giving, now this is going to sound weird, but giving like um, D-list, C-list celebrities an opportunity to come on and have their own talk show for 20, a half hour, an yes. hour. And then also sort of giving people an opportunity and a place to come in and do their own talk shows as well, just for a little bit. So what I'm hearing is the intersection with your media background and the tech and, and using technology in a different way. Yeah, you know, and I never, you know, you just nailed it. And it's one of those things where I never really thought about it. But if I if I look at my past and my history and worked in entertainment for mm-hmm. years, that that's really my foundation. Working mm-hmm. on sitcoms, and I don't realize how much of my foundation it is until I. If you talk to me about TV shows, you'll or or movies, you'll hear mm-hmm. me say. Frequently, I guess. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I worked on that show with so-and-so. Yeah, I know. I worked with Norman Lear or I did. You know what I mean? It was just another lifetime. To your point, though, I think what happens is that when you are introduced to new experiences that excite you, that titillate you, that really spark something in you, Mm -hmm. you gravitate towards that, but you use what you know. Yes to help navigate that new landscape. And so I knew that I knew that I knew media. (laughs) Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. 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 No, that's great. So you put out your personal mantra as be fearless and unapologetic. (laughs) (laughs) How has that shaped, influenced you in terms of really being a woman in the tech space and not only that, but influential thought leader partner? Oh, well, it's weird. I don't really, I don't see myself as a, as a thought leader or influential. I kind of flinch, which is really interesting because it's almost the opposite of what that comment says, right? I, I just, I am very much an introvert. Mm-hmm. I see INTP. Yes, I was going to talk about that. Yeah, ah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I want you to know that it's my litmus test. If anyone picks up on that mm-hmm. out of all my profiles, I know that they're like a kindred spirit of some kind mm-hmm. with me. That's like most people don't pick up on it. And that's fine. It's just one of those little things. But it is a big part of that introvert part of me. And people are usually like, there's no way you can be an introvert. You're too <laughs> purple. We talked about this, right? That's me, Jen. We talked about Our it. first meeting, actually. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I just sigh and I go, okay, okay. But to, but, but to your point, it's, it's so when I came out on my own, I was actually 17 years old, right? Mm-hmm. And I started working at BBDO, which is one of the biggest, ad, as you know, ad agencies in the mm-hmm. world, right? And back then, you know, to be a 17 year old Black girl working in a creative, department for some of the definitely the biggest people or the most to this day I would say they're legendary right they they were Mm -hmm. the old madmen type of personalities if I look back at my trajectory and how I was able to get in to a lot of the rooms and Mm -hmm. to get a lot of the offers that I did receive that people thought were exceptional 
for someone my age, Mm -hmm. color, my background, whatever. The thing that I can point to, because I've been asked this repeatedly, Mm -hmm. that has gotten me through that and Mm -hmm. created those opportunities is honestly the fearlessness. It doesn't occur to me sometimes to be afraid until after the fact (laughs) when I look back. Like, oh, wait a minute. Wait, wait. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? It's like jumping off the cliff, landing, being okay, and then looking back up at the height and going, wow, I cannot believe. <laughs> and then passing out because it's like, well, and that's not always the case, by the way, because we all have our fears that we consciously have to deal with too. The other thing is that I, I honestly can say that I've never been really apologetic mm-hmm. about what I want and going for it and getting it. So those are three very different things, yes? And if you allow the world, whether it's your family, friends, spouse, people at work, people who don't believe in you, people who love you, whatever, if you allow them to negotiate you out of those phases, Mm -hmm. right, then you are living those three phases and ultimately your life on their terms. Mm -hmm. And I have never, ever, I'm just someone who has never wanted that, accepted it, or understood it. And so I don't apologize for it. I don't apologize. And I've made my mistakes and that's fine, but don't apologize for what you want and for how you get it, as long as you're not hurting other people, right? I mean, but sometimes, you know, I I like to say, this is a sort of a saying that I, I know a lot of people will get, everything is not for everyone to understand. Right. And so when people used to say to me, well, I don't understand why you're doing it. That doesn't make sense. Mm. I would say that's fine. You don't have to understand it, but you do have to accept it. And if you're lucky, you'll get understanding along the way and you'll see why. Right. Right. Because you think about it, too, from the perspective of vision that you have Mm -hmm. for yourself of what you're trying to achieve. And it's it's at at times bigger because you're thinking bigger than other people might be thinking right now. So their whole conception of what should be, you're sharing those glasses and doors and saying, listen, (laughs) I've got bigger things planned for myself and I'm moving on. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And sometimes, uh, to be fair, sometimes that voice of holding you back is your own. Yes. Right? You can't see how that big thought or big idea and vision that you have could possibly come to fruition. There's no way or whatever. I I don't know if I can do it. And so you talk yourself out of it, right? And and you have to be okay with the idea of saying, oh, listen, you may not understand why you're moving towards that thing. You just need to move, right? And you'll get the understanding as you go along. And listen, you might be making a mistake, but do you, right? As they say, do you, boo-boo. So (laughs) so, (laughs) leaning into that too and being fearless, about the failure piece because you you know you're going to fail you're going to get something out of it right yeah you fall forward and you're going to learn something but you're going to fall and you hope you're going to learn something and build on to some the next thing right my biggest fear and that we all have our fears mm-hmm. right so i can tell you that my my fear is living someone else's mistake for my life right mm-hmm. I, I, I listen, I, I've made a million mistakes like everyone and I'll make a million more and I hate them. It gets on my nerves. Right. But I understand the process. I, I understand the need for that. But part of the problem, especially as women, is that we are expected to explain what we're doing, mm. to seek approval. Yeah. Mm, to I call wait. It permission. <laughs> yeah. Permission. Exactly. 
Right. Now, men don't have to do that, right? They're just given that they just do what they do. And I will be honest with you. I am someone who, listen, I worked on the trading floor at UBS Mm. before. This is when it was purely Union Bank of Switzerland, right? This was before it merged and was with Dylan Warburg, Reed and all these other. And I came, the reason I was able to move through so many different industries or sectors Mm -hmm. and be pulled into these situations where I was with the leaders in those spaces and they'd say, Charlie, come in with us, come, come with us. And UBS being one of the prime example of that, I came from working on the Cosby show, not the original one from the eighties. This is the one from the early two thousands. And I worked on that show and I came out of entertainment. I was tired of it. And I said, I'm going to temp for a little while. What the heck? I'm just going to figure out and work on my writing, do some temping and do some traveling, which I did a lot back then. I would work six months, take six months off, travel, whatever. I worked in that trading floor and that's a tough place. There's no, there's almost no other place tougher than a trading floor in the corporate world, at least then before we had all these laws that are necessary now. And they were necessarily then, right? To keep women from being harassed and everything. But I went into the bullpen, right? With 30 traders and all men, with the exception of maybe one or two of them, right. all aggressive, right? Money. Uh, yeah. These were the cowboys of Wall Street. That's what they used to call them. This was mm-hmm. investment banking. And these were guys who the bank gave them extraordinary leeway to do whatever they wanted because mm-hmm. they were bringing in hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Mm-hmm. And so my, my point in saying that is that when I walked onto that trading floor, I had my little afro. I walked on. I was like, yeah, what's up? What's going on? And they test you. Mm. And I think men in particular do that. It's their way of sort of having a rite of passage, right? They test you. And so fast forward a couple of months, I don't have a problem with that, right? Because I'm, I'm, I'm aggressive. I won't start it, but I'll finish it, right? That's <laughs> <laughs> the Brooklyn in me, right? And so my point is that I got along with them. And when I didn't, I knew what battles to fight. Right and how to fight it. And what I, every step of my journey, I learned a little more about who I am as we all do. And, and in that particular case, which is very sort of very much indicative of every, every step of my journey that I've had, when I come up against the, the, the pushback from men or from the male sort of that, and it's not always cognizant. I'm not saying that it's something that they do intentionally, right? But this is what we go through just in the workplace culturally, and certainly as black women, right? I just knew what to do. I didn't, I just knew how to fight those battles. Mm-hmm. I didn't apologize. I didn't wait for anyone to tell me that I belong there. I'm here. Right. What you mean? I'm here, right? right? Like if I'm here, I belong here. The fact that you don't accept that is your problem right now. That's sort of a question I wanted to ask in terms of how have you dealt with being the only, because you're a woman on the trading floor in technology. And I'm just always curious, but in terms of how do you yeah. deal with that? Because it's something that it's so all the time. strange. It's so strange because that's been my whole career. And if you look at my resume or you look at my bio, I was the only black woman in the room with like Norman Lear and Gary David Goldberg. That when I say the room, I'm talking about on sitcoms, right? On, on <laughs> where back then, especially the rooms were filled with predominantly male Jewish men, right? Very seldom were there females if they were maybe one or two and never black women. Right. Mm -hmm. And so people used to say, wow, I looked at your resume and I thought you were a a white guy, Charlie Oliver. Right. (laughs) And, and, and how did you get Norman Lear or Gary David Goldberg or these, these people, these luminaries in the space to, to bring you into the room and Mm -hmm. and, then fit in. So Mm -hmm. to, to answer your question, it's because I never considered myself to be other. Mm. I'm not other. Right. It's that, right? But you're going in, right? Because we talked about the narrative that you that you have that kind of holds you back. 
And what right. is the character that you have of the yourself as other right. the minute you see yourself as less than mm. you are putting yourself in a position to ask for permission yes or to have to prove yourself above and beyond the others who are in that room the way i felt and this may be arrogant and maybe just who i am but i felt like look i'm here you ought to be thankful that i'm here okay and if you don't see and recognize my talent and what i have to offer and make use of it I'm going to take that ignorance of yours and use it to my benefit. Mm. Let's go. Fearless. Right? <laughs> yeah, fearless. <laughs> right. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you something. I'll tell you what happened though. I'll tell you what happened. This because yeah. men like that, like, like Gary, they will, you know, these executive producers or whatever, they always ask me to come into the room. Charlie, mm-hmm. can you come? Can you work with me in the room? Can you sit next to me and mm-hmm. in the room and, and, you know, be the script coordinator or the writer's assistant, or whatever. And they began to, they would ask me my opinion on things. Now, mm-hmm. in hindsight, I should have asked for a lot more money for that, right? But in hindsight, I'm thinking, you know, I was a young girl in my 20s and they were mm-hmm. asking my opinion, asking me to give feedback. And when I think back to why that must have been the case, if mm-hmm. I have to give you an answer, it's because, like, like I'd say, you know, I was fearless, but I didn't, af- I wasn't afraid to give my opinion mm. for what it was, right? right? They they think they're coming up with gold and God bless them, right? They're getting paid a right. lot of money. And I recognize that in any room that I was in, that the people who were in that room, one thing that I can recognize that that was in an imbalance was like, well, mm. these guys are making a lot of money, mm. right? They have a lot to lose, right? right? So when they ask me, what do you think? I'm gonna tell you because that's for me. That's part of the that's part of the fun part of the gig. Because when I say to you, you know, it's good, but uh, I would make a couple of changes. Then the balance of power changes. Mm. Interesting that you say that too. When you talk about the whole, because it is a power struggle and a status thing that comes in, especially when you're a young professional. Can I be heard? Can I really put my insights in and and have impact in in the outcomes and results? Right. And when you get that opportunity, it's like it's taking it and and knowing how it's like being past the ball. Right. And it's not easy because I'm not saying that once you do that, that it's then going to get easy. Sometimes you do that and you get pushback and you get you get a lot of. So, listen, I get it and I've been through it, too. Um, but but again, I, I pick and choose my battles and I, and I am a fierce fighter. I will say that I'm very I've had my own attorney used to say, my God, Charlie, you're, you're like an attorney on on steroids. Like you, <laughs> like he didn't even want to pick fat. <laughs> right. And here's the thing. I'll give you an example. When I did work on the, on um, at UBS, I was just a temp. Right. And I was only there just to kind of like blow off some steam, make a couple of checks and go to do my traveling again. Right. But being in there for those months that I was there, you know, the bank announced that they were being merged with Dillon, right. Warburg and Reed. And so a lot of those traders were going to be either out on their butts or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. And the, the head trader came to me and said, I want to talk to you. Let's go for a walk. And I said, a walk? Mm-hmm. What do you mean, like around the place? And I see, this is a cultural thing that women, this is the type of thing that men do with each other, but that women, just because we, we're not a part of that, right? So so that walk, as you guys know, when it comes to like Steve Jobs and everything, you know that walk is, mm-hmm. let's talk business. Let's talk this. This is a, And so we walked around the trading floor and he said, listen, this, the trading floor is shutting down, right? And this is merging with Dylan Warburg Reed. Mm-hmm. I'm taking my top traders over to... Lizard, we've got a great deal with them. They want us. They're giving us everything we want. I said, oh, great. Congratulations. He said, no, no, no. I want you mm. to come with us, mm-hmm. but not as a secretary. I want you to get your Series 7 license. I'll start you with six figures. We'll help you get your license. We'll make you a junior trader. We'll give you 
benefits galore. Like right. we'll hit you off with licenses. We want you on the team. Now that was a real pivotal moment for, for me as yeah. a young black woman. I said, well, what am I supposed to do with it? Like, what do you do? What do yeah. you do with that information? No matter how confident you are, what do you do with an offer like that, that you've never had in that way? So anyway, my, <laughs> I will say this again, being fearless and unapologetic, you can also not know the game. Mm. I didn't understand because if you don't get taught the right. game from the insider's perspective, as opposed to the outsider, you won't know how to play it. So I told him, listen, I appreciate this. I, 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 you guys are great. And he says, yeah, Charlie, you're one of us. And I'm thinking, I'm one of you. I'm not like a male. What? You know what I mean? And so that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a guy. I'm not a Italian or Jewish. I'm, I'm, but again, mindset. right. But that's when your life talks to you and tells mm. you things about yourself that you may not realize. And that is a value proposition that you have that you yes. don't know yes. and don't know what to do with, right? right? So in that moment, I didn't realize it. But anyway, my point, my, what I said to him was, right? I don't know what you would have said, right? But I had no desire to do that gig. I could have made six figures mm. that year easily from attempt to six figures and all right. those perks and everything. I said, you know, I really don't want to, I don't want to do this for a living. I want to, I want to be a writer, right? At that point, I thought I wanted to be a writer. I want to be a writer and I'm going to pursue that. I'm going to keep going down that path, but thank you so much. I appreciate it. I, I love you guys. I think you're great. I wish you the best. And I rejected him right then on the spot. Now in hindsight, I would have said, let me think about it. Right. Right. Even if I would have come back with a no, I would have thought, let me think right. about it. Because at that point, as women, we need to know that we need to become comfortable with negotiating. And that's what I call the power piece, because what that you are giving off and may not even realize your power. Right. 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 And so for you, it's just like your everyday thing. But to others, it's like magical, something special. Right. And we owe it to ourselves and our self-development to test the limits of our power. Mm. Every opportunity we get. And the problem is that as women, I think anyway, my opinion is that we get tested. Our power gets tested in so many ways, in negative ways, right? In the workplace so often. In other dimensions, right? In other dimensions, yeah. It's Mm -hmm. ridiculous. And some of it is is so dehumanizing that the idea of us testing our own power doesn't even occur to us. No. So in that moment, I should have tested my power. I mean, yeah, I told him no, and I'm thank you, and right. I'm not a whatever. But what I should have said was, you know, well, now wait a minute. Let me revel in this moment here. Right. Let me see what else I can get. I may not want to do this for a living, but he needs something from me. Maybe I can negotiate some something else here. Absolutely. Because it's also about what are the possibilities. And if you just right. one thing, because you talk right. about negotiation, right? And I always right. say negotiation, you don't go into it with just seeing one thing. Right. Because then you've, you've ruled out other possibilities. Exactly. You create some options for yourself and give yourself that time to think right. about well, what else. Right. And that's where I think mentors are really important. Mm-hmm. And we don't really, men, I think, tend to mentor each other a lot and they have their own. And it's a little different for women. I'm not saying it at all. But, women that, but that's something that you do too, right? Business mentoring. Is that correct? It is correct. But I didn't necessarily have that myself. I mean, yeah. I had people that I could call on. 
I had people, but here's the thing. I was so fiercely independent. I was almost independent to a fault, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a problem too. Yeah. <laughs> that's a problem well, too. It's so important because you're talking it about is. building a tribe and having, I like right. surrounding myself with smarter people or just calling Absolutely. up, and just listening to what's going on in their world. Because believe it or not, you can, I take away at least one nugget from everyone I speak to in my conversation. Yes, Absolutely. And, you know, isn't that, that's also cultural. And it's also, I think when we're raised with, I mean, as young girls and mm-hmm. certainly in high school, I wasn't, it wasn't something that was impressed upon me that you need to have a network of people in the workplace who, and I started working. My first job was when I was 14 years old, I was working at Amalgamated Bank and I was 14 right. and I, I lied and told him I was 18. <laughs> Because it was a different time. <laughs> and speaking of negotiation, at that time, my mother said to me, I was 14 years old, which is a very peculiar stage for a young girl, right? And she said, you know, you're 14. Okay, great. You're going to spend the summer with your aunt and uncle in Tennessee. Now, my uncle was in the army mm-hmm. and my aunt, they would travel wherever he, they moved around a lot, right? And I, every summer would go see them. And it was great until I turned 13, 14 years old. And it's like, I'm too grown for this. I have my own life. And my mother was like, I don't think so. Right. (laughs) And so she said, your life (laughs) belongs to me and you're going to Tennessee. And I said, but the art of negotiation, right? I said, well, what if I get a job? And she laughed and said, you're 14. You'll never get a job. You're 14. But I tell you what, if you get a job, you can stay in New York for the summer. Mm. And I said, but remember what I said early in a conversation, when someone doubts me, I take that and I use it, I use it to my benefit and I prove them wrong as much as I can. But anyway, I went out and I got a little suit and I went to the school librarian, right? And I said, help me put together a resume. (laughs) At 14, I was like, resume, I said, yeah, well, I helped my my mother with her, her business. My mother owned the store. I said, I do her um, bookkeeping sometimes. And she says, okay, we put together a little resume and I went into agencies and got the first job that I went for, which was Amalgamated Bank. Right. And seeing when I worked at that bank for the summer right. as an 18-year-old college mm-hmm. student, quote unquote, I saw things about women and men in the workplace that stayed with me for a long time. And the imbalance of power, the power struggle, it was all fascinating to me at that age. And I think it probably impressed upon me to be very careful about what you say mm. and who you trust. Yep. And, um, and that is something that I think I probably will keep with me for forever. I mean, I, I think I've gotten better, right? But well, you have a business now, but I think when you talk about it too, from the relationship capital piece, mm. I think that women really we don't sometimes spend a lot of time building that relationship capital, right? right. We think right. we can do the best job possible and people are going to notice us mm. for what we do as opposed to how we, we build those relationships. And I think that's changing now as we become more aware, like you said, and get more insightful and understand how the game is being played. I think there's a shift in that. But yeah, if you, but if you do not know, you're not going to spend your time there. Right. So true. Yeah. So, so tell so me, true. what were some of the key learnings then from Tech 25, looking at it from starting from served fresh media all the way down from art of talk. If you look back, what were some of the key learnings for you? That's a great question. I'm going to say that your question. So I'm going to answer that question from the perspective of being an entrepreneur because Art of Talk TV and, and Surfresh Media and Tech 2025, that was, that was a turning point in my life. It was when I became an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. right? 
Now, when I worked in corporate and in the, for other people, even though throughout my life I freelanced, I did what I wanted. I was, hey, I set my rates. I did. Um, it was very different because I was working for companies, going in there and fixing their problems and being me and whatever. When I became an entrepreneur, the thing that I learned that devastated me and also remade me. Mm-hmm was that I assumed that because I rocked everything up until 2007, 2008, I was like, hey, I've got this. (laughs) I always thought that if and when I wanted to launch my own business, I'm going to rock that too. Mm. Hello, it's just that simple. The reality, however, Mm. is that when I launched Art of Talk TV, it was around the time of the collapse. Mm -hmm. It was, as a matter of fact, just before the collapse of the economy, the 2008 crash. Mm -hmm. And so I had a lot of great things that was happening. I had investors that wanted to give me a quarter of a million dollars to do this. You know, I was like, ooh, ooh." and that collapse happened and it took my startup, just like a lot of other businesses with it, into a big hole. And I felt for the first time in my life because I had people depending on me. Mm. I had a staff. I'd never had that before. I had people depending on me and that failure of that startup crushed me. It was a failure that I wasn't prepared for. It was a failure that no one told me about. right? Um, And it was a failure that made me face who I am in a way that nothing had ever before in my life. And so I fell into a deep depression, Mm. a deep depression. And then I became homeless because I felt like I'm just going to give up. I'm just going to give up. I don't, I, for whatever reason at that Mm -hmm. time, whatever, I don't care. I'm giving up. I'm letting go of everything. And in that moment and in that process of giving up, I lived in the streets. I did. I mean, I was homeless for a few months, maybe almost Mm -hmm. a year. It It was a lot of things that I went through. I also launched my startup, Surfresh Media, while I was homeless. Amazing. And so I realized I fought. I fought harder than I had ever fought in my life to get out of the streets, to get back up and to do it again. And mm-hmm. so I realized that I wasn't letting go because I was giving up. Right. I was letting go because I was trying to find a new way to fight for what mm-hmm. I wanted using tools I didn't even know I had living in the streets, right? And so anyway, I guess just to that point, it's the most important thing that I learned is that I'm far more vulnerable than I thought I was, and I'm far stronger than I thought I was. <laughs> and to value both of those things. And so that in the process of beginning and ending and beginning and ending again, from startup to startup to startup, mm-hmm. that very thing, those two things are going to be pushed and tested repeatedly in different ways and to just em- embrace it. And I have to tell you, it's, 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 as you know, it's never ending, right? So that's no, the most important thing that I've learned, right? Yeah, no, it, it's really, it's a testament to the resiliency and the grit that you bring to what you do so well, because you understand that tight balance between vulnerability but how you can actually use it to propel you in a different way to be stronger, but right. knowing that you're going to have these 
in ups and downs and in betweens that take place right. during this journey because it's a journey. It, there's it no, is. You don't check off and go, okay, done. <laughs> it's a okay, done. Right. And not only that, I mean, you have to like failure is okay, right? We we live in a society. You know, Americans we kind of bounce back really quickly from failure. We're just kind of very resilient. I mean, that's what makes us this, like, sort of like the innovation mm-hmm. nation, right? But I will tell you that launching Surfresh Media while I was homeless. And I got my first client at Surfresh Media. They gave me a $25,000 check, right? Mm. And it's just, again, it's it's realizing that it's a process of becoming, right? And as fly as I thought what I was, which is youthful, exuberant, arrogant, <laughs> well, it's, right, right, right. <laughs> that the, the, my failures and my faults have to always be also present and accounted for. Got it. <laughs> no, I think, I think this is great because what I'm hearing is resiliency. What I'm also hearing is lean into that failure and don't be afraid of it. Right. As well as the thing that you said too is becoming and right. always being relevant. That's what it means to me in terms of relevancy, as well as evolving right. and also staying connected. And to be honest, being unapologetic, because I will tell you, when I decided to become like homeless. I mean, granted, I, I lost all of my money, I, it was, but I had options per se. When I became homeless, I had friends and family, which is mm-hmm. like, Charlie, what are you doing? What are you doing? Right. This is crazy. I couldn't explain to them what I was doing. I never an answer. What's your game plan? What do you mean you're going to be homeless? What do you like? What? You don't have to do this. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, but I do. And no, I don't know why. And I don't even care. I just want to give up. I just want to let go. I let go of the rope. Right. And it's it's hard because and I, I, I empathize with people who, who struggle to explain to their husbands and to their families or to their wives or whatever, their friends, what they're doing when they don't understand. Because it is it's a it's a, it's being it's putting yourself through the fire, but it's also putting them through the fire, too. Right. Because you're asking. Oh, yeah. Right. Yes. They care. They care. <laughs> they care. <laughs> Except. Except for the people who owe me money. I'm like, yeah, you got a lot to say. <laughs> Why you give me my money for Yeah. <laughs> you can have a seat after you pay me. Um, so, no, but it's true. And, and listen, that's part of the struggle, right? Is, in, is hearing just as much as I heard from that trader who said, Charlie, you're one of us. You're great. You're amazing, right? It's also hearing from family and friends. What are you doing? Are you crazy? I can't, I, you don't have to do this. I love you. I'm here for you. Um, it's, it's hearing that too. That's powerful. Mm-hmm. It's painful. You want to be able to give them an answer. You feel like you let them down, but you have to be, you have to be true to who you are, be true right. to, to the voice that and so wherever your life is pulling you, you have to let it right. guide you. It's a whirlwind, <laughs> right? Of, of changes that take place. And, but it, when you're undergoing a change too, it is a lot of emotions yeah. involved. It is a lot of chaos because you're not sure why this is happening. Even to your, as, you, as you're going through it, what am I doing and why am I doing it? But right. then knowing that there's something, or maybe not even knowing, but trusting that there's something <laughs> else. Exactly. Oh. Trusting. The pro- yes. And you know, I had my grandfather, rest his soul. He died, oh God, maybe 15 years ago, 18 years ago. And I, we didn't know he was sick. Mm-hmm. You know, he's that old school. He was 90 something years old. And elderly people back then of that age, they don't tell you everything. The silent sick. generation, right? The silent <laughs> generation, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, now everything's online. If you get a colonoscopy, you got photos online. It's like, oh God, hashtag colon. <laughs> so he had, I, we didn't know that he had stomach cancer and he was, he was very sick. I didn't know. He lived out in Long Island and everything. And, and I'll never forget the day that he, 
I learned sort of from my family that he was sick. And I said, oh my God. And he calls me and he said, baby, I have to talk to you. And I was very close to him, right? And I said, what's going on, granddaddy? How do you feel? What's happening? Now? And he called, say to me, this man who was like 90, 91 or 92, lived a very full life, a good life, okay? He said, I'm afraid of dying. Mm. And he was calling me to, uh, to, I have a feeling he was calling me to release that burden mm-hmm. up, to, up, mm-hmm. up to just to be able to say that he was afraid of dying was full. And he also asked me what, what he should do. And, and I mean, at that age, you know, I was like 30 something. I'm like, what do I tell? My grandfather's asking me mm. about how he should cross over and what he had to make. What do I know about that? Right. I don't know anything, but I, I have to be there for him as much as right. I can. And I have to believe that if in his final hours, his final days or whatever, he chose to pick up the phone and reach out to me, that again, this is my life telling me something about me. If he chose to reach out to me in that moment, there's something about me that he understands can bring him comfort that I may not even be seeing. Right. right? So step up to that moment. Right. So here I go. So what do you think I said to him? Well, what did well, you say? I'm curious. <laughs> I said a prayer to myself because I said, I can't let him down. Right. I wanted to, I don't want him to, I don't want him to hear what I want him to hear. I want him to hear what he needs to hear. So of this process is that's happening, I'd like to be a conduit to, to this, to his peace as mm-hmm. much as possible. Mm-hmm. So I said to him, I asked him, I talked to him about his life. I said, well, you've told me so many times in the past couple of years, you know, we've talked about how much you enjoyed your life, how good it was, how, how you were proud of your family and everything. He said, yeah, I did, baby. I, I love my, I'm blessed. I'm blessed, blessed, blessed. And I said, well, you have to hold on to that and believe that whatever the process, whatever the power in your life and in this universe that brought you that peace and that joy and took you to the age of 93 is, that's the same power, the same process that's going to guide you into the next phase. Mm, powerful. He, oh, I don't know, but he, 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 I think he really did appreciate, I think it really did help him. And, and, and I have to tell you that moment is to help me too. Right. Cause I, I wouldn't have known what to say. I hope that I have that peace when I get to the, the point is, is, you know, you have to trust the process too, even when you don't understand it fully. Yes, absolutely. And many of us really don't sometimes, and we, we're always wanting the quick fix, jumping to, let's just tell yeah. me what the ending says so that way, you know. <laughs> right. I do the same thing though. I do the same thing. I'm a quote unquote fixer, right? So I'm like, let's fix this, man. Let's fix it. But sometimes what appears to be broken really isn't. Right. And sometimes our our job is to just observe. And I will say this about being homeless. As much as I would say about this time period right now during this pandemic, my job at that point, I felt my life telling me, your job right now is to watch, observe, observe the world that you've dropped out of right? Mm-hmm. Observe how you are surviving with nothing mm-hmm. or very little. Observe the people around you. And that is so hard for us to do. It's yes. so freaking hard, right? But but it's a part of the process. Yes. <laughs> yes. It, it's to really be, I and mean, what I'm hearing when you're saying that is to be present. Right. Be present. Absolutely. 
It's hard, man. And yeah. it takes, why does it take the most extreme things for us to be pe- present? Hello, here's a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I bet you're, I bet you're right. present now. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you going? But to the club? I don't think so. But sometimes it's a jolt to the system yes, that has yes. to take place to you for everyone to sort of say, wait a minute, something is telling, because they've been telling us. Right. Some time along this journey. But Absolutely. We're still busy running how many miles an hour? Right. Absolutely. And the thing is, is that I mean, one of the if if nothing else, this pandemic shows us that everybody to some degree needed the jolt or or is prone to ignoring what what life is telling us. Like we all need to take a moment. Right. And (laughs) it's great. This is this is amazing. And we could go on. And on and on because we have our conversation. Well, we do. On. Yes. <laughs> I want to thank and, you so much oh. for your insights and just your knowledge. And I'm, the topic is be fearless and unapologetic. And right. you've shown us in so many ways how you have done that, overcome, evolved, and be. Mm. Well, I thank you. Thank you for joining us on Your Business Greatness. I am your host, Simone Sloan, and love to see you next time.